You're coming now to the middle of the retreat for those who are here for the month of March and very much the middle of the retreat for those who've been here for five and a half weeks. But even in March, those of you who've come, we're now past the end of a 10-day retreat and we're not yet to the middle of the month. Things have had time to settle and open. And it is at this point in the heart of the retreat that we are invited to move to a more timeless understanding of life and of this world, to move from the stories and the content and the ambition and the ways that we might seek to find something, instead to rest in the reality of this openness that the retreat provides, in the reality of our awareness, and discover what is the nature of this life, this mind, this body, the consciousness that we have, and how can we find that freedom that is the birthright of every human being? How can we awaken what Ajahn Chah, my teacher, called the one who knows, that place of wisdom, so that we can live with the joy and ease and peace that is there in the Buddha and Tara and Kuan Yin and these archetypal figures that we know of. How can we embody that? Thus I have heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living in Shravasti at Jetta's Grove, and on that occasion, the householder, Anattapindika, was afflicted, suffering, and grievously ill. And he addressed one who was tending to him, saying, Please go to see the Blessed One, pay my last respects to him, and ask if he would send his wisest disciple, Sariputra, to be with me in this time of illness. And when the message was delivered, the venerable Sariputra took his robe and bowl and went to the residence of Anattapindikas and sat down and said, How are you getting on, my friend? I hope your illness and painful feelings are subsiding, not increasing. Oh, venerable Sariputra, I am not getting well. I am not comfortable. My painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. And their increase is more and more apparent, just as if a strong man were splitting my head open with a sharp sword. So violent winds cut through my head, just as if a strong man were tightening a leather strap around my head. So violent pains arise in my head, just as if a skilled butcher were to carve up an ox's belly with a sharp knife so violent winds are carving up my body, just as if two men were to seize a weaker one and hold them over a pit of hot coals, so there is a violent burning in my body. My painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. He was on the verge of death. This is a serious predicament for Anattapindika. 
Sariputra then responded, Why then, householder, you should train yourself thus? I will not cling to the eye, and I will not be dependent on the sights of the eye. I will not cling to the ear and to the sounds of the ear, to the nose and the smells of the nose, to the touches of the body, to the body and the touches of the body, to the thoughts and images and feelings of the mind. Householder, you should train yourself thus, not clinging to eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, not clinging to forms or sounds or odors or flavors. I will also not cling to eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose, tongue, body, or mind consciousness. I will not cling to the feelings born of contact with these senses. I will not cling to the elements of earth, of air, of fire, of water. Householder, you should train yourself thus. I will not cling to this world, nor to consciousness, nor will I cling to the world beyond and be dependent on that. I will not cling to what is seen or heard or encountered. Consciousness will not be dependent on any of these conditioned arisings. Thus you should train yourself. And when this was said, the householder Anatta Pindaka wept and shed tears. And then the venerable Ananda who had accompanied Saraputra said, are you foundering householder? Are you sinking? And he replied, Anatta Pindaka, I am not foundering, Venerable Ananda, nor sinking, but although I have long heard the teachings of the Blessed One, never before have I heard such a clear talk on the liberation of the Dharma. Such talk, O householder, is not often given to lay people, replied Ananda. Well then, Venerable Ones, even with my death, let such profound talk on the nature of the Dharma to be given to all people, monastic and lay. For there are those householders with but little dust in their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing such precious talk of the Dharma. There will be those who understand it. In a certain way, the invitation of the retreat is to deconstruct the ordinary reality that we take without reflection and observation to be so solid and permanent and real. And by deconstructing it through deeper attention to discover the underlying truths that bring us to freedom. Where are we going on this retreat? We might have heard some stories about enlightenment or insight or joy or rapture or freedom and imagine it to be out there if we are good yogis, good boys and girls who practice hard. Somewhere in the future, there will be some great enlightened retirement awaiting for you. Here we are, 
we start with attention in the present, breath, body, feelings, thoughts, mind. But what does it mean to be free, to discover what is called the sure heart's release? This truth that we might seek is not newly invented. Zen Master Dogen said, it is nearer than near. And all of your seeking brings you no closer and not one of your steps leads away. Instead, it shows itself as we open moment to moment to this dance of experience, the basic reality of human experience as it presents itself. So we sit and we walk and we listen with our whole being to the breath, the body pains, the tingling, the joy, the emotions, the fear, the longing, the love, the moods, the stories and thoughts. We acknowledge them by name as if to bow to them. We notice how long they last, a short time, a longer time. And then we also notice as we become more present that as they end, there's a space. And then the next thought or sound or feeling or perception arises. Suppose we examine then, not the content of this experience, what is happy or sad, but rather the process of this human experience directly. As we examine it, we start to notice that every moment has certain qualities to it. Again, from the Buddha. All experiences of the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and mental impressions arise and pass away. They are transient, impermanent. Because of this, all experiences are subject to suffering and loss. Because they arise and pass, all things are without a self. Body is transient, feelings transient, perceptions, thoughts and formations, consciousness itself, the knowing of an experience arises and passes. And that which is transient is subject to loss and suffering. And one cannot rightly say, this belongs to me, this I am. Therefore, whatever there be in experience, physical, feeling, perception, mind, past, present, or future, far or near, we may understand this is impermanent. This does not belong to me, this I am not. This is really offered as something for you to test or examine moment by moment to see if it is true 
for yourself the three characteristics. The characteristic of dukkha, also the first noble truth. In this human realm, to see that each moment is limited, no matter how beautiful it is, because it doesn't last. That every pleasant experience has built within it a little anxiety. How long can I keep it? What will happen when it changes? That there is a fundamental unsatisfactoriness built into the experience of changing conditions. And as the Buddha said, there is one thing, the not seeing of which keeps us constantly bound on the wheel of grasping and wanting and hoping and fearing. And that's the not seeing of this truth of dukkha. Now we know it universally because even as we sit here on this retreat, we're aware that in this human realm, there are hundreds of millions of people who are hungry today. There are people sick with diseases that we have medicine to cure. There's the endangered species list that grows larger every year, the destruction of the ozone. There is within our own culture, the fact that in the US, we now have two million people in prisons. We've, in the last decade or so, more than doubled the number of people in prisons. Two million people. Think of that. And there are kind of warehousing often of youth who are born into poverty or poor circumstances, often a racist warehousing. And we know this. Tonight at midnight at San Quentin, which is just down the road, there will be another state-sponsored execution of Daryl Rich, who was a murderer 22 years ago and has since turned his whole life around, but he will be executed at the hand of the government. And from friends I know that work in San Quentin, I've also gone in there at times. On the day of an execution, everything becomes very quiet. The whole place becomes sober and still, if you can imagine it. Two million people, dukkha, what our society does with it. I've heard news recently in my life about various cousins and nephews and uncles, stepdaughter, and a lot of the news is suffering. Not all of it, but some. Do you know what it is in terms of extended family? People who are struggling in different ways. We don't have to look far to see dukkha. It's out there. And the Buddha said, in fact, which is more, my friends, the water of the four great oceans or the tears that we've shed on these many long journeys 
for loss and grief and suffering, more are the tears. And even as we sit in silence, we carry this outer suffering with us. We know about it. A story some years ago, there was a film festival in New York, a Jungian film festival. The movies made of Marie-Louise von Franz, Carl Jung's probably most prominent, eminent disciple, speaking about dream work. And at the end of the films of this conference, attended by hundreds of analysts and psychologists, there was a panel of the most eminent Jungian analysts, including Carl Jung's grandson, to answer questions. And one woman stood up and talked about a dream of being dragged away to concentration camps and starved and terrible things happening to her. One knows the stories. And asked, said, this dream recurs and could you please interpret it? And Carl Jung's grandson raised his hand for a moment, didn't say anything. And then he said, would everyone please stand up? And the room stood up for a minute. And then he invited them again to sit down. He said, we'll stand together as he invited them. A moment of silence, a minute of silence in response to this dream. Later on, someone said, what was that about? I mean, what's the interpretation of this dream? And he responded, oh, there is in life some suffering that is so unspeakable, vulnerability so extreme that it goes beyond words or explanations. And in the face of such suffering, all we can do is stand together in witness so no one need bear it alone. This is one part of the human realm. And we see it more immediately as we sit and walk. The pain in our body, the fearful feelings that come, the changes of one mood to another, the illness that may arise, the unworthiness, the struggle, And even if there's pleasant days and deep concentration and rapture, then that gets lost sometimes. How do I get it back? There's a kind of inherent struggle in existence or inherent tension. Pleasure, pain, joy, sorrow, woven together. Ajahn Neb instructs people on retreats not to move their bodies without examining the impulse that makes them move. So in her retreat center, you lie in bed in the morning and you don't do anything until you have to. There you're lying there and all of a sudden, you wake up, you're lying there, you realize that lying in one posture is uncomfortable after a while, isn't it? So to relieve the pain, you roll over. And then you lie there, very pleasant, just paying attention. And then you have to pee. And to relieve the bladder pain, you get up and go to the bathroom. And then you finish and you're seated there, standing there, 
but you don't want to stay in the bathroom because it's cold and smelly. So to get rid of that unpleasant experience, you go and sit down comfortably, just being happy, sitting there, doing nothing. And then your stomach starts to give you hunger pains. And you feel the hunger pains and you get up and you eat something to ease the hunger pains. Then you have to clean up all the food because otherwise the ants will come and it will dry and, you know, get sticky and smell bad and that would be too painful, so you clean it up. And then when that's done, you don't want to stay in the kitchen because that's not so pleasant just to clean things up. So you go and you sit down again, waiting for a moment where pain won't find you. And in the course of this retreat, if you pay attention, moment by moment, there will be pleasant and unpleasant and pleasant and unpleasant. And they're woven together, cannot be avoided. This is one of the characteristics of existence. And sometimes as we see it, we begin to weep. The tears I spilled today will become rain tomorrow, says Ghalib, the Sufi poet. On retreat, I became flooded by memories of my father and the pains I suffered from his absence and being handed to foster homes neglected or disregarded. I had thought that my heart was opening up and suddenly this great wave of personal memories seized me. I was really caught up. I wept and wept. Everything I saw seemed a fresh occasion for tears. And as I watched for several days, my mood began to change and the tears became more impersonal, causeless, the tears of being moved by life. I was seized by a tenderness, especially for unseen, neglected, abandoned things, a particular shade of blue in the sky at dawn, the bones of mice dropped by the owls. These later tears are the tears of initiation. We are taken up into largeness and our heart expands. So what do we do with the fact of dukkha that's woven into human life, moment by moment, coming and going? We bow to it. We honor it. We acknowledge this truth. And there's the truth of impermanence. What happened to our childhood? It's just disappeared. What happened to the 1990s? Gone. What happened to the first month and 10 days of this retreat? Absolutely vanished. Things appear for a moment and they disappear. And if we pay attention, praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, they come like the winds, one change after another. Our heart beats, our breath breathes, our heart opens and closes. The moon comes out, the winds come. The earth spins, the galaxies revolve, the stock market continues to go up and down as you sit here. It does. And we never know really what will come in another moment. 
to sit is to feel that reality more and more deeply. You make plans. Tomorrow, I'll really pay attention. Tomorrow, I'm going to sit this way and have that experience. But it doesn't work that way. It changes on its own. A commuter hopped to a train on a train in New York and told the conductor he was going to Fordham. We don't stop at Fordham on Saturday, said the conductor. Tell you what I'll do. As we slow down at the station, I'll open the door you jump off. Just be careful because the train will still be moving. So at Fordham, he opened the door. The commuter hit the ground running along with the train. Another conductor, seeing him, opened the door and pulled him in as the train resumed speed. (laughs) You're mighty lucky, fellow, said the conductor. This train doesn't stop at Fordham on Saturdays. We think we know where we're going. (laughs) And then in a moment, something else will change. It becomes more apparent as we get still. You feel the body, and what seems like a solid body becomes a waterfall of sensations. They change and move and float energies. You note the feelings Maybe in a mood or emotion last 15 labels, sad, 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 and then it changes. I hate feeling sad. Oh, it's not sadness anymore. Hating, 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 and you notice that. And then it goes away. I did pretty well. Oh, pride, pride. And you just begin to notice one feeling comes and turns to another. Thoughts are even faster. You notice thought, it dissolves, and another takes its place. Notice that it dissolves. A little while later, another one comes. The more deeply we pay attention to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, to the experiences of breath and body, feelings and mind, the more that what seems to be solid shows itself to be moments of experience, of color, of pressure, of thought, of idea, of feeling. We are gradually taking apart the solidity of the world, deconstructing it. Now what happens as we do that often is fear starts to arise. Wait, I need to hold it together. This is a natural fear. It's written about in the Buddhist texts on meditation. But what happens If you let yourself feel the fear involved in letting go that's there, the fear really is telling you you're about to learn something new. You're about to grow. If you let yourself be with the fear and let go, you learn to swim. You learn to trust the space between things, between thoughts, around sensations. Usually our strategy in life, something good comes, we try to hold it, don't we? Oh, let me get it to stay. I had a good meditation. Let me keep it. Oh, that's so good. But it doesn't work, does it? And we tie ourselves in knots. You can't hold your breath and get something to stay because even holding your breath, it won't stay. Each experience arises and passes, and can never be repeated. There are no two moments the same. 
one another and another. As Suzuki Roshi said of all the Buddhist teachings, not always so, one moment to another. What we are, says the Buddha, is a river. And then teachings to Anatta Pindaka, not clinging to sights or sounds or smells or tastes, finding instead an openness in this river of change. Security, says Helen Keller, is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. And in this adventure of meditation, one is invited to let go of all the ways we hope and wish it to be and actually experience life as it arises and passes moment to moment. And as we do, a space starts to open up. The space between feelings, the space between thoughts, the space around things, the space within things. In the Diamond Sutra, it says, Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a dream. There is a deep joy that comes in allowing the river of life to change as it does without obstructing or grasping it. an incredible peace that comes when we're in the small sense of self, which is sometimes called the body of fear, it seems like we have to guard and hold and protect. The invitation of mindfulness is to open from that, to know it for what it is and let go and trust moment to moment the space of awareness itself. Again, from the Buddha. I read a couple of these passages, but I'll read them again. Suppose a person who was not blind beheld the many bubbles on the Ganges as they floated along and carefully examined them. And after carefully examined, they would appear empty, insubstantial, unreal. In the same way does the practitioner examine the phenomena of body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations of mind, near and far, and examining them with care, they appear empty, void, insubstantial, without a self. It's okay. It's impermanent. It's suffering and it's worth letting go of. (laughs) Thanks for trying.
When body and mind dissolve, they do not exist anywhere, any more than musical notes lay heaped up anywhere. When a lute is played upon, there is no previous store of sound, and when the music ceases, it does not go anywhere in space. It came into existence on account of the structure of the instrument and the exertion of the performer, and as it came into existence, so it passes away. In exactly the same way, the practitioner can discover all the elements of being, physical and non-physical, arise into existence after having been non-existent and then pass away. We begin to notice each moment arises due to certain conditions and then passes and the next moment's conditions arise. It is how it is. What Sariputra said to Anattapindaka is that there is a peace and a freedom and a joy that arises when we do not grasp or identify or hold to these changing processes, when we don't create the small sense of self and territory that is just a thought, an idea, a grasping, but let go into the reality of the present. And it becomes apparent moment by moment. Thoughts think themselves. We don't ask them to come, do we? They rise and they pass. The breath breathes itself. Ideas, creative and difficult, arise and vanish without a trace. Whole days come and pass, leaving nothing behind. At first, the notions of selflessness can be confusing. Ajahn Chah said, if you try to think about it, it will make you crazy. Don't bother trying to think about it, or it could make you crazy. He said instead, just rest and open and see if you possess or control your thoughts, your feelings, your sensations. They will teach you about emptiness. And as we sense that each experience happens by itself, and let go into that, there arises as well a sense of trust. A trust that there is a space of knowing, of awareness, within which we can rest, that is not dependent on the changing conditions of the world. From this Argadot, it is the stream of desire that gives birth to the sense of self that gives us name and form. The desired is imagined and wanted and manifests itself as something tangible, conceivable. And thus we create the world in which we live, our small personal world. The real world is beyond this ordinary mind's knowing. We only see it through the net of our desires divided into pleasure and pain, right and wrong, inner and outer. 
To see the universe as it is, you must step beyond the net. And yet it is not hard to do so, for the net is full of holes. Our experience is full of the holes of this net. Even now as we sit, there's the possibility of knowing what Buddha Dasa, my teacher, called moment-to-moment nirvana. Nirvana arises any moment when we are not grasping or identified or resisting experience, when experience just is without the creation of self and other. He called this everyday nirvana. And he went on, you see, to say, you must now observe yourself until you can sense that in fact you are frequently empty. There are many times many moments when you are unconfused and there is a great deal of mindfulness and wisdom. It is true. The disturbance, the feeling of grasping of eye and mind comes, but it passes away. This periodic arising is called birth. Wherever there is birth, there is dukkha. But there are also moments when there is no birth, no grasping, and so no dukkha. Unfortunately, people skip over these moments, overlook this spontaneous nirvana, and so are unaware of its presence always in our life. A person came up to the Buddha and asked him a question. Said, I hear that you are the Buddha, the awakened one, the blessed one. I would ask you one question. And the Buddha said, you may ask, how is it possible that a human being can live in such a way as to not be seen by the king of death? And the Buddha smiled and answered, For one who dwells in emptiness, grasping nothing as me, as I or mine, such a one escapes the snares of the king of death. In this openness that comes on retreat, and you start to feel more moments of it, gaps between the sense of self, where things fall away. We are opening to what is uncreated, unborn, that which is timeless, undying. And it is always here to be known. And from that knowing, forms arise, but they don't have the power to disturb us in those moments because they're empty. Sights are empty, which means they're not us. Sounds are empty, not me or mine. Thoughts are empty of self, not to be grasped or possessed or taken as oneself. What you begin to notice is how the small self comes into existence as a thought, 
this is who I am, I like, I don't like, I'm better, I'm worse. And then a moment later, it disappears. There's no permanence to it. When it's there, there's fear. When it disappears, there's space, there's openness, there's ease. To sit, to walk, is a profound surrender to the way things are. They are impermanent. They are ungraspable. Suffering and joy are woven together and no one can avoid them. As you go through the retreat, it's easy to think in certain moments you're doing it wrong. If only I could get to this nirvana. And that if you did it right, everything would be stable, joyful, rapture, happy, easy. In India, in a small village in the mountains, where some of this team of teachers was practicing, there was a clinic, and outside the clinic was a little sign. It was the clinic of Vishwanath um, Krishna, whatever his name was, Dr. V.S. Krishna. And afterward, this is his name, Dr. V.S. Krishna, MD failed, is what it said. <laughs> what that means is, sometimes in a poor village, they'll gather up what money they can and send one of the village young men off to medical school to learn some medicine to help the village. And he had gone to Calcutta Medical College, it said underneath Calcutta Medical College. And he'd studied medicine, but he had failed his examinations. Still, he went back home and he knew more medicine than everybody else in the village, so he opened a clinic. But he did it quite honestly. V.S. Krishna, Calcutta Medical College, MD, failed, right? (laughs) There were a lot of people at the clinic. I think we're all like that, really. The idea isn't success. There's no success in this retreat. There's no state, okay, now I've got it. Now I have it. Because that's not it. There is no it. There is no experience. No seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling that will do it. What are you looking for for so long? Some special sight, special sound, special thought, special feeling? Yeah, they come. Then what happens? They disappear. There are the same changing senses, no more and no less. Anyone have any more than that? Or any less? How often we want it to be different. What you sit and open to is this human realm as it is, with its sorrows and its beauty. It is as it is. From Gendon Rinpoche, he says, Our own searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It is like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching it, a dog chasing its tail. Although peace and happiness do exist, oh, do not exist as an actual thing or place, they are always available and accompany you every instant. Waiting to grasp the ungraspable, 
you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open, relax the tight fist of grasping. Infinite space is here, open, inviting, comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom, this natural ease. Do not search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great enlightened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. When we practice, we're really practicing letting go, trusting. And with this trusting, there arises quite naturally a luminous, joyful, pure, abundant, open consciousness, awareness that is there in every moment to be discovered. And the middle path, neither grasping nor resisting, is that invitation now again and again to find it, to rest in it, to trust it. I just have to say one more brief thing. Sometimes when we talk about impermanence and even more about emptiness, there's a fear that arises that if things are empty, then we won't care for the world. But Meister Eckhart puts it this way, the outward work will never be puny if the inward work is great. And in fact, when we learn to let go of the small sense of self and trust this which we are born into, which is greater than that, there comes of itself an incredible natural compassion. Because as Nisargadot said, wisdom sees I am nothing and love sees I am everything. They are two sides of the same coin when we empty ourselves of the small sense of grasping, then what arises is the great heart of a Buddha. And the tears that come are to see those beings who want to be happy entangled in grasping and not realizing that happiness is our birthright. Ajahn Jamnian, who visits here every year, a forest monk from southern Thailand, this great big ball of orange, joyful energy and kind of abundance, only speaks a few words of English. I don't know if I've talked about him in here yet. Did I? Yeah, and I said he teaches empty, empty, happy, happy. He comes into the room, you know, and he looks at people and he says, why are you so sad? You don't have to be sad. Everything you want is here. Everything you most deeply want is here, where we are. Empty, empty, happy, happy. Empty, empty, happy, happy. Or as another great teacher in Sri Lanka said to me, no self, no problem. (laughs) I end from the Tao. Rushing into action, you fail. Trying to grasp things, you lose them. Forcing a project to completion, you ruin what was almost ripe. 
Therefore, the master takes action by letting things take their course. She remains as calm at the end as in the beginning. She claims nothing and has nothing to lose. Fill your bowl to the brim and it will spill. Keep sharpening your knife and it will blunt. Care about people's approval and you will be their prisoner. Do your work and step back, the true path to serenity. When you are content to be simply yourself and don't compare or compete, the Tao will fulfill itself through you. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.